Hello and welcome to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Jacob Jarvis. On this week's edition, money madness as the Tories' mini-budget sends the markets into meltdown. We'll be picking our way through the economic wreckage and asking, why has the government decided now would be a good time to reenact Black Wednesday? Plus, conference season is underway. Our panel will be breaking down the threats and opportunities for Labour at their annual get-together. And as Federer hangs up his racket, we debate the nature of genius and the greatest athletes of all time. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome to The Bunker. Before we begin, a quick reminder that we're only able to provide free podcasts thanks to the support of listeners like you. If you like what we do, you can back us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you'll get the show early and ad-free, as well as our bespoke merchandise. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Now, let's say hello to today's panel. First up, comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. Hello. This week, like all the other antisocial, political-loving masochists across the country, will be glued to the Labour conference. Keir Starmer's main speech is on Tuesday afternoon, and he's not always the most electrifying speaker, let's say, although I have quite loved his switch to calling the government a shower and <laughs> their actions a piss-take. Uh, someone who holds packed rooms in the palm of his hand for a living. Uh, what advice have you got for him? Well... I think that the fact that he's not the most exciting person in the world to listen to speak is at the moment probably a really mm. big <laughs> asset, right? Because <laughs> there's been one thing that we've not been short of over the last yeah. few years as a country has been excitement. And mm. it's sort of like, it's, that's probably enough for now. Yeah. Like, I've had enough sugary drinks. <laughs> uh, and so it, it's, not, it's not really a problem, uh, in my opinion. And I think that there is something happening to the Labour Party, I think, that's been seen at various points throughout this conference already, mm. where it's like, you know, it, it's like watching a football team who suddenly is like, oh, we're going to win the league. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. we're, we're going to do And it just does something to the way that people speak, the way that people carry themselves, even. And we've seen this through the speeches that have already yeah. taken place. So I think it's just that really continuing over the course of the remainder of the conference to be like, we're going to be the government. Yeah. Let's hope Starmer turns into a sort of Erling Haaland-style political <laughs> champ who just completely trounces all elections. All opposition in his way is just, you know, nine goals every single time. Uh, you know, do you think there's actually something you said there? I mean, I agree, you know, bring on the nerds. I want sensible nerds to be in charge. Do you think there's something could be to be in that kind of, you know, reassuring the father figure we perhaps need. Do you think there's something in that for him? I think with any speaker or any performer, the first thing is always play to your strengths, right? Mm. If he tries to be the bumbling clown, he's not going to be yeah. good at it. The previous guy was very good at being the bumbling clown, and mm. that was very much a character yeah. that had been perfected over decades. Alexander mm. Johnson was very good at playing yeah. a character called Boris, and the character called Boris became the Prime Minister. I think that Keir Starmer does do well, as, as you know, people say to the extent that it's almost a punchline about him to call him forensic and everything mm. but that's what the guy's yeah, yeah. good at and he's good at 
occasionally being like, yeah. oh, it's a piss take. And we're like, oh, oh, oh. yeah, yeah. Sass war. <laughs> oh, pretty weird. Uh, <laughs> whereas if he was like, these fucking bastards. I, I was like, whoa, this, is, this, this isn't you, man. I don't, I don't believe Even if that's what yeah, he's yeah. thinking internally, and I, I hope it is what he's thinking internally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does seem like the government are also like, you know, the kid at school who refuses to show his working out in math sort of thing. And the teacher's like, come on, show us. How did you do this, though? And it's like, nah. I d- I think we that, did it. I think, I, the comic, uh, I think that the government at the moment are more like fully embodying the comic book villainy that you get at the end of a dozen <laughs> years of Tory rule, where Quasi Quarteng when asked about all these tax cuts and comes out and says that, oh, th- there's more. And it, it's basically <laughs> just the villain being like, I do it again. <laughs> also joining us is the independence political sketch writer, Tom Peck. Hey, Tom. Hi there. So the scenes from Russia over the past few days have become increasingly chaotic with these hooky referendums in occupied territories and what looks like the return of press gangs to Russian streets. There's also been the sight of uh, Russian men of fighting age, you know, booing it to the border. The the kind of default for left-wing voters and politicians is usually to extend hospitality to people who are fleeing danger in their own country. Should this case be be any different to that? No. uh, From a moral perspective, it should be exactly the same. Asylum is given to people who are fleeing for their lives, and there can be no surer sign of a life in danger than being conscripted into what looks like a losing war of, of complete of no more value whatsoever. Finland has said that it will take Russian soldiers or Russian men fleeing across the border. Uh, Poland and the Baltic states have indicated that they won't. I mean, it's it's not a simple moral question. Poland has already received literally millions of Ukrainian refugees. It may not be able to cope with the Russian refugee crisis too, not least as quite (laughs) the idea of running a simultaneous scheme for both those two uh, countries is fraught with problems naturally then these russian soldiers would have to flee across ukraine to get there in some cases over their own country's de facto front line which is quite an odd scenario but there are obviously pr advantages in extending kindness to terrified young russian men not only in making putin look ever more ridiculous but also in reminding the world that russians are not bad people that russia is an incredible country with a cultural contribution to humanity that's arguably unrivaled anywhere it's just been incredibly badly governed for a very long time and that needs to change and and it really could change and i think countries with the capacity to assist that change and if that means uh hosting russian uh men running away then they should certainly find a way to do that yes on uh you know the kind of pr of it i mean boris johnson maybe played his look a little bit with uh being uh as matey as he was with Zelensky and sort of with the we're best friends act there. But, you know, I think most people would say you could give him some credit on how he approached Ukraine. How do you think Truss is going to handle it comparably? I mean, this is a massive thing for any leader to have within their entry and with everything else that's going on at the same time. Well, she'll handle it in exactly the same way. She was foreign secretary before she became prime minister, don't forget. She was foreign secretary at the start of the Ukraine war and, and throughout it. Um, there is very little political capital actually to be made out of Ukraine because there is no real divergence of opinion on it. Johnson, Truss and Keir Starmer would all do exactly the same. Um, it's worth remembering that the, the UK, like other countries so far, has been more willing to play the easy shots. If it, it finds it easy to provide military assistance, and so it has done, it finds it less easy to extricate massive Russian wealth from its economy. There are other things it could do. We, we could kick the children of Russian oligarchs out of our private schools. We could seize ever more assets. 
conservatives thus far have been reluctant to do that because they feel that that would expose them to the degree to which they are in cahoots with it. But Liz Truss is likely soon to be in dire need of political capital, and she may decide that there are advantages for going after that stuff too. That stuff too, but she, she may she may decide otherwise. But that's the only way in which she could differ from Johnson would be to go further on the financial side. Because on, on the military side, there's there's no there's no ground to be made at all, and one hopes she she will she may do. Mm. So when the pound goes below the dollar, we should expect Liz Truss full blown full blown photo shoot in Kiev inbound. <laughs> uh, well, I suspect she won't even need to wait for that opportunity. She's not she's not shy of a photo shoot. <laughs> And finally, we have freelance journalist, author and beloved Bunker regular, Justin Quirk. Hey, Justin. Hi, Jacob. Europe woke up this morning to the news that a party with very strong and pretty recent roots in actual fascism had effectively won the Italian election for the first time since World War II. What does this do to the uh, balance of power and general direction of political travel within Europe. Yeah, it's not great. I mean, I think it's worth remembering, you know, Italy is a hugely important country to the continent. It's the third biggest economy in the EU still, you mm. know, forever we joke about the sort of state of their political uh, political life and jokes, which seem increasingly less funny now that stuff's closer to home. I mean, it's clearly not great for European cohesion. I think the likelihood mm. is it's going to see them grouping more strongly with countries like Poland and Italy and sort of caucusing yeah. within there. The counterpoint to it, if was sort of stepping back a bit. Maloney has, throughout the campaign, strongly affirmed support for Ukraine. I think that mm. was sort of the fear that because there are these sort of historic links between the Italian right and the sort of Russian establishment, that there was likely to be a huge sort of change of course there. And compared to most probably equivalent right-wing parties across Europe, Maloney has not been agitating about leaving the Euro or the mm. EU. Um, I think part of this is fairly sort of naked self-interest. Italy is the biggest recipient of post-COVID aid. Uh, Just last September, the Commission granted them 4.7 billion euros to Italy under the REACT EU scheme to support the country's uh, response to the coronavirus crisis. I mean, also, you have to say that Italian politics is far, far more volatile Mm. than perhaps almost any other country in Europe. You know, when you look at the sort of leading lights of that right-wing fringe across Europe. You know, someone like Le Pen has plugged away at this for decades yeah. dynastically. You know, her father was involved in it for decades before. Farage, to some degree, you know, has been a constant figure around this stuff, going back to the sort of almost the Goldsmith era. Italian political organisations and politicians, by contrast, tend to have more of a tendency to flare up very, very fast and then flame out quite quickly. You know, people like Five Star, The League, or if you look at the way they've grown very suddenly in mm. the past few years and then gone again... And in, also in this case, you know, Maloney is having to hold together a coalition with Salvini and Berlusconi, who are two politicians with huge ambitions of their own mm. and, you know, a general air of political untrustworthiness. I don't know if they're the two people you would want to be <laughs> building a coalition around. Um, and, you know, just as a more final sort of more general point, often the actual worst thing for insurgent parties is actually having to be in power. Yeah, You know, this comes with like the boring business of administration and where if what you enjoy is ramping up a crowd and posing as a revolutionary, the actual boring business of can you get the bins emptied mm. every Tuesday and who does the water yeah. rates. It's sort of easy to shout from the sidelines, I suppose, as opposed to actually. Yeah. And, and again, going. and to bring things about domestically, I think, you know, what you've seen, it's what you've seen throughout Farage's career. You know, mm. whenever there was anything that would actually have to have responsibility taken for it, he has disappeared very, mm. very quickly. I think, unfortunately... You know, what it probably means on a domestic level is because there's going to be less of that structural upheaval, I think you're more likely to see them going for the very cheap cultural wins, which mm. 
disgracefully, I think is probably just going to mean agitating against all sorts of minority rights and other sort of migrant you know, groups like migrants within the country. So, yeah, pretty unsavoury. After what's felt like months of political inertia over the summer, business returned with a vengeance on Friday in the form of new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's mini, but actually pretty mega budget. The first reactions to this were, it's safe to say, not great. Gill markets rocketed, Sterling went into a cardiac arrest, and former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers told Bloomberg that the UK is behaving a bit like an emerging market, turning itself into a submerging market. We'll put him down as a maybe then. One anonymous Tory minister told the Sunday Times that everyone who isn't mad hates it, and at the time of recording, the pound was heading for parity with the dollar. Tom, the the biggest announcement in the the mini budget, or as I'm calling it, the fiscal event of the year, <laughs> was the uh, the cut in income tax. From April, the basic rate will fall to 90%, and the 45% top rate is going to be abolished. What is Kwarteng's logic behind this? Well, you'll have to tell me, I'm afraid. Um, it seemed so insane at the time that it left the pundit gang worried that they just didn't get it, You know, me included, that, that, that we don't know what that we don't understand what they're doing. But I think it's now very clear that it's them that that really don't know what they're doing. I mean, for weeks, like various trust chums, like, for example, the economist Julian Jessup of the lobbying group vaguely disguised as a think tank, the Institute for Economic Affairs, he's been saying that borrowing money to cut tax, because trust, trust is, it's not like trust hasn't signposted this. And all the way through the leadership contest, her and her chums have all said that borrowing money to cut taxes won't trouble the markets. They'll understand what they're trying to do and the markets will be very relaxed about it. Now, it's very, very clear now. They've been very clearly shown to be completely and utterly wrong. So I don't think there is a logic there. I don't think they saw this shit show coming. I mean, people have suggested that actually they want rates to go up, that they would have liked the Bank of England to go further than it did last week. So this is all fine. And so if the BOA does what it's speculated that it might be about to do and do an emergency rate hike, then that's fine by them. But that is really sort of retrofitting reality. It certainly was not their plan. And on the politics, like the political strategy, if there is one, I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, I used to work in the city. I was an I was an analyst at a big American investment bank, and I spoke to some city trader mates of mine at the weekend. And one of them was actually extremely annoyed about it. He said it's fine by him because he'll get a few more quid. But he also thinks it's political suicide and will lead directly to a Labour government, which he doesn't want. So he'd rather just keep paying the 45p tax rate than that. The idea that there's some clever, clever strategy behind it, I don't see it. I think they've just fucked it up. Yeah, yeah. One of my mates who works in finance, who's seemed relatively not chilled out, but seemed pretty like, yeah, it's, you know, it'll come out in the wash. It's sort of okay. Actually, takes me saying was like, I'm actually quite scared about this. Like genuine sort of worry about what is going on. Truss's launch has kind of been a little bit delayed. Do you think she's maybe just gone, I really want to throw myself out there and that's why it's been this sort of, this big, this quickly, rather than it maybe it would have been drip, drip, drip if she'd had a bit more time before this point? Well, she wants to win an election in two years' time um, and she clearly thinks that the way to do that is to achieve economic growth. I do not see how you can introduce measures like like cutting the top rate of tax, giving millionaires more money, and then hope that there will be wider effects on the whole economy. I don't think there's anyone who thinks, I don't think there's any sane analysis that suggests that even if that like Milton Friedman style economics works, that you're going to see returns within two years. 
So, and I don't think she, she she's not stupid. She, you know, she was a, she was an analyst at the treasury and she's, she's, she's not completely economically illiterate by any stretch of the imagination. So she must be thinking that within two years times, all she can hope is that there'll be some progress visible and that she can ask the voters to give her longer for the, for the, for the real gains to come. But given how bad everything is, the severity of the cost of living crisis, I cannot foresee how she will be able to convince enough voters that what's required is more time, especially as we'll have had 14 years of Tories by then, albeit only two years of her. And she will have to com- convince people that, you know, the sort of the hockey stick thing, the Nike swoosh, like, give me a bit longer and we'll, and we'll you know, should we, asking, should we saying again, the sunlit uplands are just around the corner? Well, I can't see the voters standing for it. Research by the Resolution Foundation found that two-thirds of the personal tax cut gains are going to go to the richest fifth of households. So the top 5% of households gain eight grand from the cut and the bottom 10% nothing at all. You know, you've mentioned how this doesn't really look like it's going to work politically and logically. Does it actually seem, you know, how... You know, you are more expert on the finance than myself. How would this? How is this going to boost growth? If you know, how do they think it's going to boost growth? Yeah, I mean, I should say I worked in the city very briefly, and the reason I left is because I became aware that I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> so I don't claim to um, have any great expertise. Well, you're still more so than me, though. I'm, cer- I'm certainly not an economist, but 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 borrowing so much money that it actively raises the rate at which you can borrow it, and then doing nothing other with that money other than cutting taxes for people who don't need it. I do not see how that works. People people say that it's not exactly a return to Thatcherite economics, but rather it's an attempt to copy Reaganomics. Well, Reaganomics was dependent on the big, strong, beautiful dollar. And my goodness, these guys definitely, definitely do not have that. And you, you, what you've effectively got is the government trying to boost growth by cutting taxes, then the Bank of England trying to rein it all in by raising interest rates, which is a completely deranged way to run an economy. I mean, I forget who it was who was on the Today programme on, um, on, on Monday morning saying that you've got, if you have a government with its foot on the accelerator and the Bank of England with its foot on the brake, and then you hope to sort of move, move forward slowly in, 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 in complete sort of uh, like sort of crunching gears. Well, it's not a normal way to do things and it will not yield positive results. The Truss and Quarteng have clearly, you know, they've misread how the markets would feel about this. In terms of among MPs, it seems like Tory MPs aren't even completely happy with this. Plenty of them aren't. What's the sort of mood you're feeling among uh, among those within Parliament? Well, among Tory MPs, well, this is the truly mad thing, is that is the people supporting this stuff, you know, the real sort of head-banging libertarians like various spectator columnists and, you know, Alistair Heath of the Sunday Telegraph. These guys obviously love it. But the Conservative Parliamentary Party is jam-packed with people from fairly normal backgrounds representing normal towns and the normal people who live there. And Boris Johnson is not a political idiot in terms of political strategy. He knew very well that he was in government having borrowed the voters of these towns from the Labour Party. He said to himself many, many times that these towns, their natural natural instinct is to vote Labour, and, and he borrowed them and was hoping to effectively carry on securing that loan. But those MPs now, there's been no electoral event since then, and these MPs know that they're going to have to go and knock on the doors of people who, frankly, haven't got a pot to piss in and have to defend handing back an extra 40 grand to someone on a million a year. You cannot make that case. I mean, if I, if I, if I was a Tory, I mean, I've been a journalist for a fairly long time, and there's this thing in our industry where we talk about doing death knocks, you know, where you have to go and, if you work for a local paper, you have to go and knock on the doors of 
someone who's someone in, who's who's lost someone in a in a terrible accident or something. Well, people in our industry could 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 offer training to Tory MPs who are going to have to go and knock on doors in Doncaster or whatever and try and say, well, look, please vote for me next time. I know that what we all we've really done is double your mortgage by giving your money to millionaires. I mean, good grief. I cannot see how it's going to work. From my own experience of Defnox as a local journo, my advice to MPs would be, you're going to get told to fuck off. Uh, because <laughs> I did plenty of times. Uh, Justin, how do you read the situation politically? Yeah, I mean, leading on from Tom's column there, I mean, for most of my life, whether it was deserved or not, it feels like the orthodoxy has always been that the Conservatives are the fiscally mm. prudent party. Yeah. And that reputation was, you know... yeah worn very heavily mm. you know that it took a lot to shift that yeah. um this budget honestly seems to have just torched that completely in a way that mm. i've been struggling to think of a precedent for yeah i mean it's hard to imagine something that has just blow torched that yeah. amount of political capital that fast yeah um that seems to have been coming through in the polling for quite some time. I mean, last August, I think, was the first time when Labour overtook the Conservatives across the board in the polls about who was more trusted on the economy. I think that was seen as a hugely significant uh, sort of marker in sort of mm. what the direction of travel was in the country. And Rachel Reeves' is leader in the FT uh, at the weekend, I thought, was notable for going very hard on the fact that to Tom's point with, you know, struggling to find an explanation for what's just happened. This is essentially appears to be a completely evidence-free approach from the mm. government, which doesn't seem to be rooted in much more than this is no. something we would like to work and we're just going to mm. throw everything at the wall and see if That's it does. That's kind of the thing though, isn't it? I mean, Brexit was, you know, it's the kind of just, if you think it well enough, it will work out. Do you think that's kind of, well, it's it, a similar yeah, I mean, approach? Yeah, I mean, we also see, you know, and things like climate crisis where, you know, it's basically sort of politics as like an article of mm. faith you know this yeah. idea that if you just sort of ignore the reality in front of you you can make the facts mm. bend to fit the situation in front of you um i mean one thing i thought was notable on friday and you know saying about the responses that ordinary tory mps are going to mm. see blowing back on them from this i thought it was notable how few of the normal defenders were out mm. you know normally mm. when there's ever any sort of like government action you get the sort of like cut and paste whatsapp groups just surging yeah. out across twitter that just seemed to be absolute yeah. crickets on Friday. And like I said, it just genuinely feels like across the board, yeah. people are actually struggling to formulate a response to this. Mm. Yeah, like the, uh, what's the footballer tweet that, please, can you post something like <laughs> yeah. great match today? <laughs> that, please, can you post something like brilliant mini budget today, quasi. Uh, more than anything, the budget feels pretty reckless. And also, it it's sort of completely blatant about which parts of the economy are going to have money shoveled towards them are they embarking on a you know a two-year smash and grab before an election they're pretty much you know it looks like they're pretty certain to lose i mean it certainly looks that way um i mean obviously one presumes they still hope they will win in mm. two years time but the just the sort of how unvarnished this whole thing has been around it hasn't even got that sort of gloss of here's what no. we're doing in terms of leveling up or you know like you know high street yeah. resolution things just the bald nature of we're taking money from here and it's going here and you mm. can all get fucked if you don't like it just seems remarkable. And I think, you know, going back to like the financial stuff that's still unfolding and has probably changed while we're on air, I think this is what's frightening the market. You know, it's not just what we're seeing from them is not just a short term response to a radical budget, but things that suggest that the markets are sort of going, things are really 
scuttled at a structural level here. You know, the mm. performance of guilt markets, just that longer term sort of panic about government economic co- uh, competence. Mm. I thought, I mean, the notable detail in there was the very good Sunday Times long read this week about, um, you know, everything that's just happened in the last few days. And they, a few of them raised that point that there's this idea of sort of free marketeers in Downing Street who think they understand this stuff. And then actual free markets in free marketeers in the city who mm. essentially think they're enormously out of their depth and are going to eat them for lunch. And just this real gulf between sort of an ideologically held position in government and then how this is actually hitting ground yeah. in terms of reality. Cool. Um, and yeah, frankly, I think you know, they're going to be lucky to walk out of this with both kidneys intact. I do feel like you say that, you know, does one expect that the Tories, you know, would still hope to win the next election? And yet when someone stands at a dispatch box and talks about getting rid of the highest taxes on very high earners and uh, Mm. stopping a cap on bankers bonuses and all of these things that were just done as sops to the rich, it just felt like watching a party that basically expects to get their asses handed to them and are writing mm. the T's and C's of their next employment contracts in the moment, right? And yeah. it's like, to the extent that, like, if I were the Chancellor of the Exchequer and saying, like, and P.S., you get £1 million tax-free if your name rhymes with Shahir Bar, <laughs> uh, right? Like, that, that's that's very much what it felt like. Oh, here, the, the tax stuff got all the headlines, but a lot else was announced. And in the, you know, let it not be said that we are a biased <laughs> podcast in any way. I will not hear it. Was there anything good? There was. There, there were a couple of uh, good things. Um, Torsten Bell of the Resolution Foundation wrote a Twitter thread about this that uh, you can look up if you are so inclined. I mean, the Twitter thread is a lot shorter than some of the ones that you may read yeah. about the various catastrophes <laughs> that have emerged. Uh, it sort of includes things a like, mini well, the, for the a mini font's budget. good. It was a good <laughs> font. It's striking... When you look at the crumbs of positivity that we are able to take for this, like recognizing that uh, lack of growth has been the problem in the British economy, sort of stopping the fact that there was a total bias against onshore Mm. wind, despite it being the cheapest form of renewable energy, I believe, coming forward with some plans to improve Mm. energy efficiency, albeit not enough. Uh, Right. It, It just reminds me of... Boris Johnson saying that he was going to increase the number of police on the street by basically the number that the Tories cut in the first place, right? Like, why is it that there has been a total collapse in onshore wind power? It's because David Cameron basically put a stop to it. Why has the economy basically stagnated uh, for most people for over a decade? It's because of what was done by George Osborne and David Cameron in the aftermath of the recession and choosing the the political choice of austerity rather than sort of countercyclical investment, right? So, So... yeah, and that's before we even say, well, the proof will be in the pudding in terms of you can very well write that we are going to make sure that infrastructure gets sped up. But the second that that comes into conflict with a local Tory MP who is getting flack from people who are concerned about one home being built on technically greenbelt mm. land, uh, that's before we even get to that. But yes, it, it, it's a party trashing their own record yeah. such as it is uh, very much because e- even that and. 
there's been this thing through all of these prime ministers that we've had over the last 12 years, this, this desperate attempt to like Phoenix-like style yourself as some <laughs> new thing of like, oh, no, yeah. that, oh, oh, but that was, we had to do that in the mm. coalition. And yeah. so, oh, no, that was David Cameron. Oh, that was Theresa May. That was Boris yeah. Johnson. Now, and pretty soon, that was Liz Truss. Yeah, yeah. uh, right. But this is the Conservative Party. They mm. have been in power for the last 12 years in this country, and they themselves are now reduced to we are going to try yeah. and unpick the worst parts of our own records such as yeah. we see them while also driving yeah. forward full pace into a brick wall mm. of even further catastrophe yeah it's one thing i've sort of vaguely in a bizarre way admired isn't the right word but i've thought about the conservative party it's this ability to remain really loyal as a party unit but also every couple of years go yeah. forget about that we're new we're new now it's, we're like, different. it's like shitting yourself and then getting a haircut and acting like it was someone else <laughs> right like <it's>... <laughs> <laughs> hey, you made a lot of great points there but since you mentioned fonts i just can't help and get it out of my head of the idea if they've, they just released this all in a press release in comic sans <laughs> that would have been you know the ultimate the joker ultimate. man seems more likely <laughs> What a difference a year makes. Twelve months ago, the Conservatives were enjoying a ten-point lead over Labour and Keir Starmer's chances of hanging on as leader of the opposition until the next election looked decidedly shaky. But now Labour have a solid eight-point advantage and the dull dependability which many saw as Starmer's Achilles heel seems like an attractive contrast to the Tories. Tom, a big part of the Labour story since Starmer took office has been his attempt to limit the power of the, the left of the party. How has he done that? And is that task sort of complete does it feel well he spent he didn't there was no conference two years ago was there he didn't he didn't get to do his first conference and then last year um he spent most of it making sure that various rule changes went through um which limited the power of the corbynite wing if you like to get their own way i think where because they're in such a strong position you know in life you argue more when you're losing, don't you? When 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 people in a you know for a couple are down on their luck, that's when they that's when they bicker. I think the Labour's immense uptick in fortunes, and I have to say, largely to a great extent, not so much as a consequence of their own doing. They have been gifted um, serious momentum by their by their opposition, but that always makes life easier if you're a party leader and you are and you're in front as opposed to behind. I'm no fan of Jeremy Corbyn, but I think possibly looking back people like me were not necessarily understanding of the difficult place that the Labour Party would be in, whoever were leading it. Their good fortunes now are not necessarily entirely of their own doing. But Starmer has done a very, a lot, a lot of Starmer's job thus far as leader of the Labour Party has been internal work, if you like, like trying to bring the party together by, really by limiting the influence of, of the Corbynite wing, who, who, most of Corbyn's top team, they only came to work for him. They came to work for him from other parties, like, like came to join from the Socialist Worker and so on and so forth. Um, and getting rid of that, those those elements of the party which were not even really parts of the Labour Party until Corbyn became its leader, has been a, a real challenge. And he certainly had some success. And he's halfway through. If he does get, he's halfway through the five-year post-election cycle, probably. And if he can spend the next two and a half years trying to sort out, saying, making clear what he do about the country's problems as opposed to sorting out the party's problems, which he has done a good job of, then he may surprise people. I, th- I think he should be further ahead at this point in terms of 
setting out his vision for Britain. Um, but but he still does have a while to go, and the 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 internal problem stuff he has without doubt done a good job on. Yeah. What sort of form do you see that positive offering being in from Labour? Because you know they've had, as you say, this ability to just recently kind of sit back and go, well, look at what the fuck they're doing. We're clearly better than that. But eventually, you know, they need to form this, and we'll do this. And uh, you know, what sort of form do you see that? coming in well it's very 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 hard for a long time a lot of, there were a lot of young people for whom jeremy corbyn was their messiah now i think he was the wrong messiah for lots of reasons but you can't ignore what what caused lots of particularly young people to support corbyn and, and to take up radical politics is because they feel that there is nothing working for them there's nothing going in, in their favor now that is very very hard for someone like Keir Starmer to sort out because what's not going in their favor is basically one thing and that is the cost of buying a house. If you can't buy a house, you can't accumulate capital, you are left outside of the capitalist economy, and then you sort of say fuck you to capitalism, right? Now, I don't know how any politician can really solve that problem because there's only ever going to be one housing market. If, if, if there's an enormous housing price crash, people who own a house will be fucked, especially the ones who are hyperextended because it's been going on for so long now. But you can't section off a portion of the housing market to make it fairer for young people so I think the problem, the, the big, that is, that's just sort of a micro, uh, one example of exactly the problem Starmer faces, which is that you do, there does need to be radical answers to these problems and they're, they're not easy to come by. And if he has got, if his position is, well, look, I'm a sort of centre left, more reasonable, less radical, then that, that, that will cause normal people and, and floating voters to go his way. But he's a long way short of coming up with any kind of real policies that will actually make a difference to the lots and lots and lots of people and disproportionately young people who, who feel like radical politics is the only way that has, that is the only thing that offers them any hope. I actually don't really know how he solves that problem. It's very, 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 very hard. Justin, a suggestion from last year's polling was that, you know, rather than there being a kind of affection for Starmer, he just compared very favourably with Johnson. Is Truss harder for him to go up against in that sense or is she you know at this point becoming just as toxic as he was it's interesting i mean i i thought that was the case originally i mean part of the thing i was thinking if you think about the sort of contest element of like prime minister's questions you know the optics of a man laying into any woman Mm. you know verbally are often not great yeah. You know, I think just the way people respond to it on a sort of visceral level yeah. as a voting public are difficult. Um, and there's also the thing where, you know, despite a very long and it's got to say, you know, successful career, Truss is weirdly a bit more of a vacuum still. Yeah. She doesn't, and, you know, she doesn't inspire this kind of active visceral hatred in the way that mm. Johnson very, very clearly did with a lot of people, where people just wanted to see him getting laid yeah. into the whole time. But at least you know, so far, and this is early days, I mean, she she seems to be so unequal to the challenge in front of yeah. her that this new caricature of a politician is sort of taking shape mm. almost in real time before our eyes. Mm. So, um, yeah, I thought she would be sort of more difficult than she was. I think if things continue on this trajectory, then I think she'll be a you yeah. know fairly easy opponent for him to lay into. Do you think another thing being there, I mean, you know, Johnson clearly made himself pretty easy to hate, but there was this you know it grew smaller and smaller and was a diminishing return in the end but there were the people who like really for whatever reason loved him whereas trust doesn't seem to have that though no and and very very few politicians do 
you know, mm. I mean, if we're being honest, I mean, yeah, when wherever you look at them, wherever they appear across the spectrum, I mean, someone like Corbyn was an interesting example because I was, I had almost no agreement with him politically. His appeal was slightly lost on me, but he could motivate large numbers of people who, you know, other politicians wouldn't read. Trump clearly has it. Farage has it to some degree. Johnson clearly just had that ability to read a room. Yeah. Trust, particularly presentationally, seems to have a lot of issues in terms of communication mm. and, you know, reaching across to an audience like that. So, yeah, I I think that's the kind of skill that you either have or you don't. Mm. Starmer, to be fair, like, doesn't massively have it either. So, you know, it's not that common to come across. But, yeah, I think she certainly doesn't. Ah, here, Labour sung the national anthem at the opening of conference, which seemed to, you know, annoy some people and some people thought was very tactically astute. I mean, I was quite nonplussed to be perfectly honest what do you see as the you know the reasoning behind this i think that the reasoning behind this as the reasoning behind a lot of things have been for the now quite a while that kirstan has been the leader of the labor party is for him to hold up a giant placard saying i am not jeremy corbyn (laughs) and uh basically i just hope that that message has now gotten across Mm. enough and it's time to move on to who you are yeah uh rather than who you're not you know like it was to, mm. it, it, it's to be honest with you i found the watching the singing of the national anthem at the labor conference to be just a bit cringe i didn't really mm. have any videos but it's not yeah. like it was some sort of long-standing tradition that then stopped and was restarted in actually the way that uh, no. the singing of the red flag uh became it did strike me as a bit odd that uh people were sort of like pleasantly uh, commenting afterwards like, mm. in the media and whatnot, and uh, labor sources also being like, and it, and it went off without a hitch. No yeah. one heckled, no <laughs> one booed, and it's like, yeah. Well, I mean, you sort of if if you're gonna be the government of, you probably can't have people booing the national no. anthem at your conference. So mm. uh, it, it was, it's an odd thing to be remarkable. Yeah, uh, and yet uh, that's, I suppose where we are. There's, there has been a change, like I watching. The Labour conference last year and during Keir Starmer's speech, there being assorted heckles, and perhaps this will happen again this time. Time of recording, Keir Starmer's not delivered his speech, but you know there were those heckles that he had to say, you know, chanting slogans or changing yeah. lives conference, and it's like, listen, mm. no, we want to. And you'd hope that now that part's sort of over, and yeah. he can move on to the. And there have sort of already. Uh, been encouraging things. So I think uh, Lisa Nandy uh, spoke on housing shortly before uh, we're recording and said that housing is not a market, it's a human right and there's going mm. to be a mass uh, sort of campaign to build more council homes which I think would be fantastic and it would be lovely to see mm. uh, sort of numbers on that uh, but with uh, Rachel Reeves talking about yes we're going to reinstate the additional rate of tax and we're specifically going to use it to deal with the massive personnel shortages uh, in the NHS again mm. a real problem that's being identified uh, Louise Hay talking about about uh, bringing uh, railway companies back into public ownership once franchises expire, which is weirdly something that sort of started happening a while ago, but because it was Rishi Sunak who was Chancellor at the time, he could never admit to it. Uh, So he just sort of had to pretend that the railways were still massively privatised, which was slightly odd. But yeah, I I think that this is the nice moment. If this is going to be a conference with shifts of the message getting out to the public, no longer who you're not, but who you are and what mm. your policy platform is. There's been no shortage of policies being sort of thrown against the wall uh, over the last few years by the Labour Party. Yeah. But right now, I think that there just needs to be a direct offer. This is who we are, because quite frankly, they may need to go back to their constituencies and prepare for government a bit sooner than mm. uh, perhaps even they thought. 
Tom, Labour leaders have, you know, been kind of plagued by one misstep at certain points in uh, in recent <laughs> times. Do you think? Uh, do you think there's a bacon sandwich moment potentially that Keir Starmer needs to to avoid? Um, yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that Miliband was not done over by his inability to eat a bacon sandwich. He was done over by openly declaring war on Rupert Murdoch. And unsurprisingly, the bacon sandwich came after on the front page of The Sun. And one wonders why. Um, I think I don't think Keir Starmer is even close to being in a position where he needs to you know, avoid tripping up that it's a sort of a straight march into number 10 and just as long as he doesn't, um, just as long as he remembers to hop over whatever obstacles land in front of him, he has not yet done what I would consider to be the basics. He, he hasn't come close to, he's done a very good job of prosecuting failing conservative governments in the sense that he you know, is a prosecutor. But that is a very, very different job from, from, from painting the pictures required to convince a country to make you their prime minister. The idea that he is some, some that, that all that stands in his way is a misstep um, not at all. What stands in his way is that he has not yet done that most important thing. And he needs to do that at the very first opportunity. Well, the, there have been other opportunities already that he hasn't quite taken. The speech, which, <laughs> as has been said at time recording, has not been made, is a very, very, very important moment for him. I can't. I don't think he was miles ahead in the polls this time last year, but I can't remember. To do a conference speech um, when you're this far up, um, but still the public haven't necessarily really took took to you. That is a big moment, and it's very important that he delivers on it. Finally, last Friday saw the final match for tennis great Roger Federer as he teamed up with Rafael Nadal in doubles at the Labour Cup in London. At 41, the Swiss legend has decided to call time in his career, but where does he rank in the term of sporting greats? And how do we define great in sport? Tom, you're a former sports writer and Olympics correspondent. What sort of legacy does Federer leave, not just on tennis, but on sport you know, as a whole? Well, look, whenever you discuss who is the greatest of all time in any sport, you're never really discussing the, 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 the potential goats themselves. You're really just discussing the terms to, that, that make some of the greatest. You know, is, who has won the most Grand Slams or in football? Do you need to have won a World Cup to be the greatest of all time when not every great footballer gets to play for, the, for, a, for an international side that might win a World Cup? So you only ever really argue about the terms. And it's not necessarily that instructive. I mean, if you took the three greatest tennis players of all time are arguably the three that are just coming to the end of their careers now, Federer, Nadal and Djokovic. Um, if you made them, if you took them all at the peak of their powers and made them play some sort of three-way tournament on the three surfaces, there's no doubt that Nadal would win on clay. Djokovic would probably win on hard and grass would be a toss-up between Federer and Djokovic. But it's not necessarily all about the stats, you know, because sport ultimately is an, is an entertainment product. P- people want to watch it. And watching Federer, good Lord, there's, it's not, it was it's such a supremely different and superior experience to watching all the others. I mean, the sheer style, the, the way he made it look so easy and so effortless. And that is what the greatest people in all walks of life do as well. And not just also obviously in sport, but in so many walks of life, acting, all, all the creative industries. The real geniuses are the ones who make their genius look simple. I mean, Federer, you know, he, he never broke a sweat. I mean, and if you think of this golden era of tennis that is coming to a close, what are the most golden moments of that golden era? Of that golden era, 
for me, it's those majestic Federer backhands that you just can never and never forget. I mean, I, I remember in 2015 covering Wimbledon and the semi, which which Djokovic won, but the semi final when Andy Murray played Federer and he lost in three sets, and obviously the crowd wanted Murray to win. But Federer was immaculate. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. There was not, it's almost like he didn't miss a beat for the entire match. It was like he was playing a different sport to Andy Murray. That style, that 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 sheer perfection is something that is so rarely seen in sports. And he I mean, he had it in, in bucket loads. And if, you, if we'd had this golden era of tennis and maybe there'd only been two of them rather than three of them, if, if say we'd only had Nadal and Djokovic or we'd only had Federer and Nadal, the one that you'd miss most by far would be Roger Federer. Hmm. I hear. How would you measure the success of an athlete? Is it about the numbers or is it, you know, kind of as Tom said there, is it, is it vibe? Should it be more vibe based somewhat, you know, how they feel when you're watching them? I think so. I think that because when you watch a certain type of athlete, and it's a word that I don't think has been used yet, and forgive me if I'm wrong and I missed it, but it, it's beauty, right? The, the, mm. the, it's specifically like watching Roger Federer play tennis was, it's a beautiful uh, mm. experience. And that's how I felt watching, for example, Sachin Tendulkar bat when he was at the height of his powers and everything like mm. that. It's just they are fundamentally you get a sense of someone operating on a plane that is not accessible to uh, the mm. given time. You know, like you have Sachin Tendulkar with a, a rock being chucked at his head at 90 miles an yeah. hour. And he acts as though it is someone underarming a beach ball to him. Yeah. Uh, right. And it, it, it allows us sort of as a third party, something that we don't otherwise uh, have access to in our life. And I think that that's really about because you can you can go on the stats and people love to go on the stats with Ronaldo v. Messi or, mm. you know, who's, who's got the like a, a thing that I think and I will bring this back um, to cricket. Once again, one of my favorite stories is the story of Don Bradman, who's largely considered to be the greatest batsman ever, who retired uh, with an average of 99.94. The story goes that uh, he he only needed four in his final innings in order Mm. to get uh, the average of 100, uh, and he got out for a duck. The story goes because he had a tear in his eye thinking about it, and he spent the rest of his life furiously (laughs) denying that. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Who knows? Uh, the story that I heard was uh, Donald Bradman sitting down and uh, seeing a young Sachin Tendulkar batting and uh, excitedly saying to his wife, who was in another room, like, come here, come here, come here. Yeah. Uh, and just said, like, I'm batting. Because that's what, and it was like he was seeing himself almost reincarnated during his okay. lifetime into the wow. uh, body of this someone else. And it's always like, you know, those are two people at different stages of time, both mm. of whom, you know, the old man who as a young man had yeah. access to this ability, yeah. watching it in someone else. And you do, you see it across all sorts of performances. When mm. uh, I, I've had moments on stage as a comedian and seen other comedians have moments on stage where it feels like you're a football player who's just got that bit more time on the ball than yeah. anyone else does. Time just, it moves a bit weird. Mm. Uh, and it's the most wonderful feeling to experience what is happening to you and mm. is something that is dazzlingly beautiful to watch. Mm. Justin, do you think you can, you know, compare across different sports or is it just so, you know, specified to each sport itself really when it comes to the greats I, I don't think you can as Ahir says in terms of you know numbers and stats and also even comparing across different eras 
is mm. now so difficult because you know the pace of physical change but also in certain sports technical change mm. you know things like the introduction of carbon shoes in long distance running yeah. makes it very very hard to sort of track across eras like that but i think i hear his point about the the beauty inherent in this is really really interesting and i think it's something that you know we often don't appreciate is that it's not just the beauty but i think the flip side of that is that there's a sort of tragic dimension in mm. some ways to watching some of these people because the very nature of their skill it's like seeing a butterfly in yeah. the terms of the span of a lifetime they have an incredibly short window there's always occasions where you see a sportsman and it's that moment or that race or that match where oh, yeah. they're not quite they can't quite reach mm. for it anymore and once it goes it goes and it just flutters off and that, you know it's like you know I see the boys of summer in their room yeah. and it's and there was a um, highly Gabra Selassie, one of the he was you know, one of the all time great Ethiopian marathon runners. And about eight years ago, there was he was running. I think it was the Edinburgh Marathon, and they were showing it on TV on Sunday morning. And he just got, and you could just see as soon as he set off, things weren't right. And he got mm. about ten kilometers in, and I think his asthma was playing up, and he pulled up at about eight kilometers. And just, you know, the the motorbike camera sort of trailing yeah, away, and him yeah. being left in the distance. And you thought you'll never see him run probably again at the level that he ran at. And, you know, we'll see it in the London Marathon this summer, Mo Farah is running. And Mo, yeah. Mo Farah in his day as a track runner was untouchable. You know, mm. he ran beautifully. He ran, you know, aggressively. He was a, an absolute just legend within the sport. He's never been able to copy that across the marathon mm. running because it's a completely different discipline. And he will run the London Marathon this Sunday and he will be a huge draw and the organisers want him there and the crowd want him there but he will probably come in around ninth or 10th. Mm. It will be an incredible performance by any normal person's standards, mm. but it's not a gold medal. No. And you know that till the day he dies, because he has the insane mentality of all competitive sportsmen, the gold medal is what he wants. Mm. And I think whenever you watch these people, that built-in tragic element yeah. is always part of it. I was just going to say, I've, I've often found that that is one of the most compelling sights in sport. I mean, you might think this is a silly example, but I'm, I'm a big fan of darts. And there have been some really great darts players um, in recent years. And when you watch them, um, when, they're, when they're past their own peak, which was a consequence of their own incredible devotion, when you get to the point where you see that the, the fight that they're having is not just with the opponent, but it's they're fighting against their own waning powers... <laughs> That is that can be really really fascinating to watch when you can see when you see that it's not coming as easy to them as it used to they, but they still have the the, the the sort of the mentality that, that got them to where they were but but you can feel the uh, the physicality drifting away but they fight against that as hard as they fought against the opposition that I always find that to be a fa- incredible thing to watch for me I'm a I'm a Leicester City fan so Jamie <laughs> Vardy even if he were to never score a goal again is always going to be the ultimate rustler of the opposition. Mm. And therefore, that mentality will just remain. I'd have him play for us when he was 60 years old if it was just to <laughs> cup his mouth at Wolves fans, basically. Uh, so on that note, who would we all say is the greatest athlete of all time? Uh, I hear. This is going to be the stereotypical answer, but I'm going to say that it is Sachin Tendulkar. Uh, and this is... Beyond the numbers, uh, which are extraordinary, if we're talking about the sheer longevity of the career from being a 16-year-old boy uh, where he started to leaving at 40 or thereabouts, uh, and doing that all on 
a career of that length at the same time where over a billion people who are insane about that particular sport mm. essentially regard you as a deity takes a degree of psychological strength i think yeah. along with the sporting ability mm. uh that's uh, just extraordinary to me and i remember when india won the uh, the indian men won the uh, one day world cup and uh, such as the entire team lifted uh, on his shoulders and they said oh you lifted such in and uh that was just like well he's carried the entire country for long enough so yeah. it's uh, about right nice justin Partly because of his stunning achievements and also because he's very much in the news because of yesterday, um, the Kenyan marathon runner, Elliot Kipchoge, who, if anyone missed it yesterday, he didn't just break his own world record at the Berlin Marathon. He absolutely annihilated it. <laughs> he's the only man to ever run below two hours for a full marathon. Mm. Not, in a, not in a regular race, did it in a time trial. But he is, to the Tom's point about beauty... Watching Elliot Kipchoge run is like watching a metronomic machine just moving through the streets. He runs faster than any pace I could get yeah. to. I'm a half-decent runner. I can't get near his pace. And he maintains it for two hours solidly. Mm. It's mind-blowing to see someone like that run. And Tom? Well, you can't answer that question without uh, considering what do you want from a great sportsman? What What is greatness in a sports person? Especially at the moment, we live in a time where sport is essentially a hostile takeover of sport by terrible states and, and terrible business practices. And in that sense, the, the truest leader the, who, who obviously competed with immense beauty, but also was true to his values and was an inspiration to so many people. I don't think you can really look beyond, beyond Muhammad Ali. And if you didn't go with him, you'd I would go with Diego Maradona purely because of what he did in 1986, where he became he propelled himself to messianic levels and nobody but no force on earth was going to prevent him from winning that World Cup. But when he did it, he took his whole country with him. And that just means more. When you when you use your greatness to inspire and to and to just give people real joy, then 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 that just matters more. And that 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 for me is what greatness means in sport. So it has to be Muhammad Ali or Maradona. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the books, films or TV shows that have given our panellists a break from the bruising world of politics? Tom, what have you been checking out this week? Well, I haven't got one specific, specifically, and this is possibly a terrible answer, but about an hour ago, I took delivery of a 25-foot inflatable movie screen. I've already got a projector, so if we are going to have to have a World Cup when it's dark outside, this will be how I'm going to make the most of it. And I'm, But I'm planning literally within the next couple of hours to test out with a special screening of Top Gun Maverick. And I am very, very excited about that. <laughs> uh, Justin? I've been pottering around art galleries, as mm. usual in my spare time. Uh, mm. The Forever Changed group show at the Giant Gallery in Bournemouth is on until October the 16th and is well worth a day trip to the seaside cool. if you're not already in Bournemouth. <laughs> uh, I hear. <laughs> I recently re-listened to a fantastic podcast series that The Onion made a few years ago called A Very Fatal Murder. And it's a <laughs> sort of a spoof of uh, your true crime podcast mm. and everything, sort of 15-minute, very tightly written uh, episodes. And uh, don't skip the ads uh, if you're someone who naughtily skips the ads during <laughs> podcasts, uh, because they're very much part of it. It's extremely funny, and I very much recommend it. Well, mine, and this is not satire, I went to see a band actually called Brutality Will Prevail on Friday, 
with uh, two of my best friends from back home. Uh, we were into hardcore and metal music when we were younger, and this was their farewell show. And it actually had mosh pit security guards, really, which is the first time I've ever seen it. So, yeah, that was my my weird and wonderful escape route this week. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Tom. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ahir Sharp. Thank you. And Justin Quirk. Thank you for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, support us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Just search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Justin Quirk, Ahir Shah and Tom Peck. The group editor was Andrew Harrison and the producers with Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. With assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.